everybody. We are rolling once again. I am Lee Grant, joined by Kevin Pendergrass, the ever inimitable Kevin Pendergrass, and we are exploring faith and pursuing grace. This evening, we are joined by a very special guest. He is someone that uh, Kevin knows, probably on a personal level, a little bit better than I do, but he's a person that I have been following for quite a while. We are joined by Brother Matt Dabbs. He is the current, um, I'd say, editor-in-chief. Would that be accurate, Matt, of the Wineskins publication? That is correct. Yes. He is also an experienced preacher. He has a degree in psychology from Harding University, a Master's of Divinity from Harding School of Theology. And Matt has been involved in full-time ministry for 15 years and just recently has launched the Backyard Church Movement in Alabama, or at least has been integral to the launching of that movement in Alabama. Matt, thank you so much for taking time out of your week to join us on this podcast and have this discussion, brother. Yeah, thank you, Lee. And you know, I heard that you had a velvety voice, but to experience it is quite another thing. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I don't know what to make of all of these comments I'm seeing on Facebook and these things I'm hearing about it. I've been told that I have a voice for radio and I feel like I have a face to match. So that's a God's uh, sense of humor at work there. But today we wanted to have you on. Kevin said that he had reached out to you a while back about joining us to have a discussion about legalism. Uh, that is a subject that Kevin and I are both uh, very well acquainted with. We both come from legalistic backgrounds and have had legalistic leanings in the past. And on Wineskins, you had published a podcast and a couple of videos on legalism. And there was a lot of discussion in the Wineskins group that, that I'm a part of on Facebook about legalism after those episodes came out. And Kevin thought it'd be a really good idea to have you on. And I agreed with him. So we're really happy that that you're joining us for this. Um, as it relates to legalism, though, one of the things that I think would be a good place to start as we have this discussion is defining exactly what we mean by that term when we use it. Because a lot of times that's one of those clobber words that's kind of thrown around. If uh, you tend to disagree with what someone says, it's easy to point the finger at them and call them a legalist. Or if you take a more and I'm really getting to where I don't like using this term, but if someone takes a more, quote, conservative position than what another person does, then they are often accused of being legalistic. So this is a term that's thrown around a lot. And because of that, it it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I think it'd be a good place to start by defining what exactly it is we mean when we use that term legalism in this discussion and how what the best way is for it to be used when we discuss this topic with other people. Yeah, that's such a good place to start. And I think the most simple definition, I'm going to start simple and then I'm going to get a little more complicated, a little more nuanced. So, so the simplest is not perfect, but at least it's a a place to start a conversation, which would be Jesus plus. That's not a sufficient definition, but it's a start. So when we think about, what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means to have a relationship with Jesus and to be in the family of God, what is required of us to be a part of that family, to be in community with Jesus and his people? So one of the ways that that you look at it, that I look at it, is how we view our own effort in relationship to God's effort. So God's effort comes first, and we respond to that. We respond to his grace, his gracious acts of favor on our behalf. A a legalist is going to look at 
their relationship to the saving acts of God, the gracious acts of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, and begin to kind of tally up how their work has merited something in regard to their own salvation, right? So, so effort, there is effort involved in the plan. We're not unwilling participants in the plan. It's how we view that work and that effort and its effect. So am I doing these things to merit something versus am I doing these things as an act of response to the grace of God? Now, the flip side of legalism is legalism, and this is going to be maybe a little bit uh, weird to say, but uh, legalism and liberalism are actually the same thing in a sense because a legalist is going beyond the scriptures. A legalist is saying, here are the things that are required to be in the family of God, and it's a quite a lengthy list, whereas the scriptures do not create such a lengthy list of what it takes to be in the family of God. So if you take, for example, Judaism, that has 636 laws and Torah, or however, whatever that number is, um, if, you, if you take that example, you say, well, how many laws in the Torah actually have to do with getting in or staying in the family? And it's basically four. There are four rules that say, if you don't do this or maintain this, you're out. It's circumcision. If you don't circumcise your boys, you're out. It's kosher. If you don't eat the right things, you're out. It's holy days. If you don't participate in them, you're out. And it's Sabbath. But there's 629 or however many other commandments that God does expect his people to obey, but have nothing to do with being in or out. Very, very little to do with that. And so my, my point is, is that I think the New Testament is very similar to that. If we want to be biblical and serious about taking the Bible seriously, we would go to the scriptures and say, what does the Bible itself say about what it takes to be in? And it says nothing about instruments. It says nothing about you have to have the right church governance to be in. It says nothing about all manner of things that we would say are the marks of the tr a true church. Those are things that we have kind of systematized and patternized and then retrofitted salvation into a system that we created. See, now you're into the legalist realm, because, which is actually quite a liberal realm rather than a conservative realm. A conservative realm would say, I'm not going to go beyond the scriptures. But a legalist is constantly going beyond the scriptures and saying, I'm binding things that the Bible itself never binds as salvation issues. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That makes perfect sense. And I really like just the simple statement that you use to frame that. It's Jesus plus. And one of the things that I do, I wear many hats, proverbially speaking. I, I do a lot of different things. Kevin and I run this podcast. I have my own business that I operate. I help my buddy run and teach at a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school here in Ardmore. We have a homeschool community. We homeschool our kids. I was homeschooled all the way through, which explains some of my stranger tendencies. But we, uh, <laughs> that, and we homeschool our kids and we're part of a homeschool community. And I work with the eighth and ninth graders in that community. And one of the things we're doing is, is we're going through, we're reading a bunch of short stories as they're preparing to write some of their own short stories that we will then collect and we'll print them in like a copy for the families again. It's, it's really cool. Well, one of the stories we read is The Mansion by Henry Van Dyke. And I don't know if you're familiar with that story or not, but it's a really interesting story. 
there's a businessman who everything that he has ever done has been to work towards building his empire and increasing his stature in the eyes of his community and to acquire as much wealth as possible. And his son doesn't want to follow in his footsteps. His son wants to go on, on a mission trip. His son wants to go and help people. And this fellow looks at everything as, as the bottom line. His name's Wakeman in the story. And in the story, he, it's a beautiful story. If you ever want to look at it, it's old enough. I'm pretty sure it's in public domain, so you can pull it up anywhere. But he, he always looks at the bottom line. If it doesn't increase his stature in the eyes of society, or if it doesn't increase his investments in his bottom line, he's not interested in doing it. Well, his son had a friend who helped him out of a jam when he was in college. His son wants to send this friend some money. And his dad's like, no, it's not going to do any good. It's not going to help him. It's not going to really serve any purpose. It's a wasted effort. Well, his father goes to sleep that night and has a dream that he goes up into heaven. And he's up there with these people going into the celestial city. They're talking. They're traveling through this meadow. And they get into the city. And, and he's there with a doctor friend of his who... Um, sacrificed in his life to help others and to assuage, you know, the, the suffering of the sick. And he's given this big mansion. And then this other person's given a mansion. And as they're going through these people he's with are receiving their mansions, he's waiting to receive his because he's done so much in life. He donated and helped build the local church building. He, he gave to the college and, and did all these other things. And they finally get to the outskirts of town and he has this little shack set up in the middle of a field that looks like it's about to fall over. And he's just beside himself. And the angel says, well, that's all the material that you sent. You know, your focus was on all of this instead of being where it needed to be. And I think there's a parallel there with legalism whenever we begin to focus on our efforts and we begin to focus on things that the Bible doesn't elucidate as being necessary to be in the family. We make it about Jesus plus and our focus is shifted from where it needs to be onto those things instead of being more like Jesus and emulating him. And we even go a step further in saying that by doing all of these things, we are now emulating Jesus and we are doing what Jesus wants us to do Whenever we've jumped, you know, quite a few feet away from where we ought to be to make that case. And I don't know if that made any sense or if I just rambled aimlessly for the last two and a half minutes. But, but I really like how you put that. It, it's, that's a good way to define what legalism actually is. And, and Matt, I, a point I want to jump in here and ask you a little bit more about because I've never really had heard it put quite this way. You said that really... It's almost a form of, of liberalism in the sense of truly adding to the Bible. And all of us here were former legalists. And I know from, from my perspective, I would quote passages like 1 Corinthians 4, 6, that we're not to go beyond that which is written. And 1 Peter 4, 11, we're to speak as the oracles of God. And the emphasis was always, we just follow the Bible and the Bible alone. We don't add to, we don't take away. And, and it was just really a heavy emphasis on that. But... As you put it, when, when you talk to an individual who is trapped in the bonds of legalism, there is all these laws and rules that you can't find in the Bible, that they're concocted together through certain verses that have been cherry-picked and, and kind of just put together and taken out of context or isolated to try to create a whole system of belief. 
And I, I got to thinking about Acts 15, because this is a passage that really hit me when I was studying uh, years ago, when I was really trying to understand better how I can relate to the scriptures and trying to myself overcome legalism in Acts 15. The context there is that you have those who are trying to bind circumcision. They're saying that, as you put it, Jesus plus circumcision. It's not enough just to follow Christ. You have to be circumcised to be saved. And what what is even... I guess you could say give, you, you could even give them more credence for what they were doing because at least they had an Old Testament law. You know, they could go to the law and say, well, look, the, the Bible does say you're to be circumcised, to be saved. And so they were having to fight that. This wasn't even something that they had made up. This is something that was part of the Old Testament covenant. And in Acts 15, 24, it says, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from among us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, and then it says, to which we gave no such commandment. And so the point is, we never gave a commandment for Christians to be circumcised in order to be saved. That, that was never a commandment we gave. And the ones who were teaching that you had to be circumcised to be saved, they would have been the ones who were claiming that they were following Scripture. And so I really like the way that you put that, that it, it's really a form, if you break it down uh, and, and get into the weeds, it really is a sense of liberalism in the sense of, adding to that which isn't there and not not only not there explicitly but not only you know it's not even there in principle yeah so we say we speak where the bible speaks we're silent where it's silent but we have necessary inference to fill in the gaps right so now god speaks on everything you know yeah. necessary yeah. inference allows god to speak on everything yeah, I uh, I think was it Rick Ashley who said when we're we speak where the Bible speaks and when uh, the Bible's silent we speak even louder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's really good. You know, it's it's interesting because in Genesis 17, God tells Abraham that circumcision is to be an everlasting ordinance. So you can understand, and, and if you don't do it later on, it says you'll be cut off just as a apt verbiage, you'll be cut off from your people if you don't, you know, cut off the foreskin. Mm -hmm. So you can see why they would say this has to keep going. <laughs> yeah, you can understand where they're coming from. Yeah, absolutely. From a scriptural perspective. Yeah. And what's really interesting is James, you, you probably already know this, but, you know, James and the rest, when you get down to the rules that they bind on Gentiles, where it's no sexual morality, no strangled animals, no meat with blood in it, etc., if you look up those rules that they bind in Leviticus, every single one of them has a little catch. And it says, and this rule is to also be applied to the alien and stranger living among you. So what they did, it seems to me, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, was to go back to the Old Testament and say, what did the law itself require of the Gentile? And what they found were laws that prevented pagan idolatrous practices from entering into the community of faith. I think that's how it seems to me anyway. But I, I find it really interesting and compelling that James... That's interesting. That's a good point. I've never considered that. I like that. You know, that they're saying, well, how do we find out what's expected of a Gentile? Well, go and find out the scriptures in the Torah that says this rule applies to aliens and strangers who are the Gentiles, right? So I find that really interesting that they did that, but didn't also include circumcision, which was to be an everlasting ordinance, they said, which sure sounds like an eternal thing. 
So I, 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 I don't know the reason for that. I don't think there's any scripture that specifically tells us that, but they were certainly leaning into, you have to be a Jew to be a Christian. And that became their legalistic stance, adding to the gospel in a way that Jesus never revealed to them. So, so that really was the issue. You know, we see that consistently throughout the New Testament. Paul's always writing about it. We see it in the book of Acts where circumcision just keeps being brought up. And that was that was their problem. That was their legalistic problem is that Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus the law, Jesus plus parts of the law, Jesus plus this. And circumcision obviously being at the, the forefront of that. So my question to you is, what today would you say in your experience are some of the hallmarks of legalism? Because I don't think there's hardly anybody going around today saying you have to be circumcised to be saved, at least not within within most of, of our experience. And so, you know, how, how do you even recognize it? How do you even label it? If there's somebody listening to this and they're thinking, well, the last thing I want to do is 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 add anything to Jesus. I, it's, it's Jesus and Jesus only, and that's who I follow. I certainly don't want to want to be adding to that. What would you say are some hallmarks to just encourage folks to consider and reflect upon to make sure that they're not following in the trap of legalism or that we're not following that trap? Well, I, I think that it all starts with something that we would all agree on is to take the Bible seriously. So if I'm going to take the Bible, I'm going to take God seriously, I'm going to take his word seriously, then I'm not going to put words in God's mouth. I'm going to go back through the scriptures. I'm going to determine which things that we're practicing are tradition, which is are things that the Bible does not talk about versus things that are scripture, because there's a big difference. But sometimes we have a hard time. Once you do a tradition long enough, it it feels as if it, it's scripture. Once you kind of co-opt enough scriptures to prop up tradition, it sure feels like scripture. So I think it's important for each of us to go back through the New Testament and put our experiences, put our worship practices, put our church expressions back through the New Testament and determine which things are scripture and which things are tradition. Now, when it comes to which things are scripture, there's even more delineation that needs to take place. That is, which things are of first importance and which things are not. So this takes another level of maturity and discernment. So if I want to be scriptural, then I have to agree with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that these are the matters that are of first importance. Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. If you deny those things, you're not a Christian. He does, there's a lot of things he doesn't list as first important items. And I, and I don't know that that's his all-inclusive list. But here's what I encourage people to do. Go back through the Bible and find all the verses that talk about if you do this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what you're going to find is you're going to find behaviors, not doctrines. If you act like this, sexual morality and all these kind of things he lists, you know, you're really jeopardizing your salvation. We've gone so far as to say if someone even thinks an instrument's okay, but never even does it, they're going to go to hell in some yeah. circles, which is just crazy, in my opinion. So... If I'm going to be my point, I'm, I'm kind of rambling here a bit, but my point is to be biblical would mean to agree with the biblical writers. So one of the challenges of our of restoration movement and Churches of Christ in particular has been we have not done a good job of distinguishing that there are indeed things of first importance, which then implies that there are things that are not of first importance. 
we've made everything of DEFCON 5 first importance, you know, <laughs> level. Well, I, I had a, a friend of mine and we, we have, Lee and I just got done doing several, a couple episodes, I think at least on Unity and just how a, a legalistic framework and filter will lead to just further division. Would you believe that unity is dependent upon everybody seeing everything alike and believing doctrines just exactly the same, uh, cognitive agreement, then eventually you're going to figure out that you can't fellowship anybody. And a buddy of mine, he and I, that we were studying, this was back in 2014, 2015, that, that time period. And I had just written a study on why I changed my view on instrumental music and worship and why I don't think that it's wrong anymore, why I don't think it's sinful. And I had had a debate in 2012, so I actually was going through that debate and explaining to people, here were my points then, and this is why I think that they're wrong. And I'm not trying to convince anybody to use instrumental music in worship, but we don't need to be condemning people who are using it. And so this preacher friend of mine, we were studying this for a while, and he, he continued to ask me some questions and ended up coming to that same conclusion. Well, I, word got out that he and I were talking and his eldership called him in and asked, do you believe that it's okay to use instrumental music in worship? And he told them that where he was at at that time is that, no, he would never teach or preach that they should use instrumental music and he has no plans for trying to to introduce that at all. But after talking and studying with other people, he came to the realization that he's not at the point to draw a line on that issue. Well, they fired him. And it wasn't enough that he did it. It was enough for him not to condemn people who believe it's okay mm -hmm. to do it. Because at that time, uh, you know, I wasn't at a church who did. I'm still not at a church that does it. And so it, it's, it, it wasn't even like you're fellowshipping somebody who does it. It's you're fellowshipping somebody who doesn't condemn it. So therefore you're condemned. And as you pointed out, I mean, it just gets to the point where the focus of the cross, the focus of what Jesus did, his example, the death, burial, and resurrection, that continued focus that we see in the New Testament, that that is just really pushed down to the bottom. <laughs> and, yeah. and all these other issues are elevated. Well, absolutely. So let's take a few more scriptures into consideration. Go to, go to any introduction to any letter of Paul. They're all written to correct doctrinal issues, pretty much. Is it maybe um, one of them is a little bit hard to ascertain as Colossians or one of them. I've, you know exactly what the specific issue is, but they're all written as correctives. People thought Romans was not corrective until they figured out the Edict of Claudius and the Jews leaving Rome and coming back and the friction that was caused by all that. But they're all occasional. So Paul pretty much starts all of his letters by saying, to the church of God in Corinth, grace and peace to you from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, or something along those lines. And what struck me was that Paul doesn't start his letters by saying, to the almost church of God in Corinth, until you read my letter and fix all these problems, and then you'll be the church of God in Corinth. And you could say, well, Matt, but they're not all getting it wrong. Well, my response would be exactly what you said was, yes, but they're fellowshipping the people who got it wrong. Mm -hmm. And they're all still the church of God in Corinth. Now, certainly the dude who's sleeping with his stepmom and all that are on the outs, but it's all written to, to bring them back. So I, I just, I think that Paul has a lot more grace in that 
he's recognizing people as Christians before they make the correction. And I just don't see that level of grace often in some of, some of our circles. I would say they would have to disagree with Paul on that matter. I would say they would have to disagree with Paul in Romans 14. One of you thinks X, one of you thinks Y. Each one. This, this verse blew my mind because I was so linear and logical and analytical when he says each one of you should be fully convinced in your own mind. You're serving God, not each other. You're, you're, you're answerable to God, not to each other. Do not judge people on these matters thinking, wow, if I've got to be faithful and biblical and follow the instructions of the New Testament, which I say I'm doing, then I have to follow Romans 14 too, which goes back to 1 Corinthians 15, which is not everything is of first importance. And so if I'm going to be biblical, I have to say some things are more important than others because that's what Paul said. So to adopt a position that everything is of equal importance because to get one thing wrong is to get all of it wrong, or to get, you know, uh, say it this way, what we did was we said we're going to recreate New Testament Christianity and we're going to follow the pattern of the New Testament church, and then we're going to make following that pattern precisely the mechanism of salvation rather than Jesus being the mechanism of salvation, which then he adds his people to his church. So, you know, we kind of created a little, a little bit of a mess when we did that. And then you get into discussions like, well, how precise do you have to be? And I've asked various people that question. I never have felt like I've gotten a very good response. Like, wouldn't precision to be precisely like the New Testament church to be lifting holy hands in prayer and for women, which is an imperative, and for women to not wear jewelry or have braided hair, and the answer I get back is, well, not not precise on that. <laughs> well, then precision's not very precise, is it? Well, and one of the issues that that tends to stand out in conversations like that, and what seems to come to the surface, is how arbitrarily those lines are drawn. Yes, those things that are made issues of first level importance are done so. Whenever you have explicit statements, and I really love what you said earlier, and, and, and you, you had mentioned something about this um, on, a, on Facebook earlier in a, in a post that you had made or one that you were answering. It may have been on one of the wineskins posts, um, but about the idea of the, the scriptures, the epistles being occasional. And I think that's a really important thing, and I think that we recognize that. I think that a lot of our people do recognize that, but we're just not consistently, we're not consistent in how we recognize it. Because in conversations that I've had about lifting holy hands or wearing jewelry or braided hair or, or things along those lines, well, there's always a contextual explanation given as to why that was an occasional commandment. But whenever we get into something like... Um, one example that comes to mind, that's it, it's a big, big issue... Um, one that is elevated to an order of first importance in the one cup branch of the churches of Christ is the hair, the covering of first Corinthians 11. Mm -hmm. And what is the position that's held to with uh, many people within the one cup group by the majority, I would say, is that the covering is uncut hair. And if a woman cuts her hair, well, then that's a big deal. And it's like, okay, but if, if these other things are occasional, and we explain those in a certain way, or we, we look at those through a contextual lens, and we allow context to help us elucidate their application in the here and now, why don't we do that consistently over here either? You know, another example that comes to mind is 
foot washing as a component of the observance of the Lord's Supper. You have Jesus in John's account washing the disciples' feet, and it's like, okay, we observe the Lord's Supper, and we demand that there be one cup and one loaf on the table, because that's what Jesus used, and that's what Jesus did. What did he use? That's what we have to do. That's what we will do. Because that's what Jesus did, and it's like, but we don't recline at the table like he did. We don't wash feet like he did. We don't greet one another with a holy kiss like he did. We don't observe it in the context of a meal like they did. We don't raise two cups previous to that and then bless the third one and skip the fourth one like he did at the Passover. We don't do any of those things whenever we observe the Lord's Supper, but those emblems have to be observed, but these other don't. We have a, I had a conversation with a fellow once about foot washing, and I asked him that question, why don't we wash feet? Jesus said, this you ought to do. And his first response was, is, well, that's a suggestion. Wow. That's a suggestion. Yeah. Because he said, well, you ought to have done it. And I said, well, he said the same thing when he was talking to the scribes and Pharisees about straining, you know, about, you know, observing, not observing the weightier matters of the law. You know, they'll observe the tithe of mint and anise and cumin, but they'll neglect justice, mercy, and, and faith. You know, they'll neglect those things. They should have, they ought to have done those things. Was Jesus just making a suggestion? Oh, well, no. You see, when we show hospitality, we're washing right. people's right. feet. Yes. And I'm like, well, I don't disagree with you, but why are you using that filter here, but you're not using it here? Right. Well, and, on the and, table, and it just, you go round and round and round and round about it. Well, and even in the letters that Paul wrote himself, we see that, so much of his instruction is situational, not constitutional. And we, we see that because if you were to put all the letters together, there's conflicting information. If you were just to read it like straight up law. Uh, for example, you have Paul telling uh, the Christians in Ephesus when he's writing to Timothy that the younger widows need to marry. It's better for them to marry. They need to make sure that they marry. But then he writes to the church at Corinth and he says, widows don't need to marry. <laughs> it's better for them not to marry. And if, if you're putting that side by side without considering the situation or the occasion, then that's literally a contradiction. If the New Testament is supposed to be constitutional law, there are so many co contradictions in it, it wouldn't be funny. Um, you know, you have Paul in Corinth saying, don't, don't be circumcised. If, if you are, are, you know, if you, if you're a Christian, there's no need for you to have to be circumcised. Don't worry about it. And then what does he do? He has, he has Timothy circumcised, but he doesn't have Titus circumcised. And, and, and I mean, you just see so much of this where Paul is writing same thing with, uh, you know, when he writes to the, to the Christians in, in Galatia, don't observe holidays, don't observe feast days. What does he say in Romans? You can observe these things. So, and, and Matt, you've been pointed out, you know, in Acts 15, where that he listed these, these laws for the Gentiles and, and which was, you know, I don't believe universal because you come then to first Corinthians and Paul says, it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols as long as you don't offend anybody. Well, which is it? Acts 15, here's constitutional law that says, don't do it. First Corinthians 9 says you can. So you, you just start breaking or first Corinthians eight. And so you start breaking all these things down and you see that the new Testament is not written like a constitution. It's not written like law. It's not even written like the old Testament. You know, at least in the old Testament, you had here are the laws pertaining to this, here are the laws pertaining to this in the new Testament's here's instructions pertaining to Corinth. Here's instructions pertaining to Ephesus. Here's instructions pertaining. And in this point in time on top of that. So, you know, it's not just situational or occasional. It's, it's also, uh, with within a certain time frame, if you will, that that's cultural as well. Talking about foot washing and holy kissing and these other things, and so 
yeah, there's so much that goes into all this, but I do have have this question because I'm curious and we didn't tell you we were going to ask you this because this just popped into my head, but you have a degree in psychology. And so I'm wondering, do you think do you think that there's any type of element that you you can bring up from your studies in psychology to explain why legalism may be attractive to so many people, especially younger people, because I think most youth are really attracted to legalism, especially if they were trained in it, because it it gives you that sense of certainty, self-righteousness, superiority. And so is there that that's just my own musing. So is there anything that you might have discovered or just observed through your knowledge of psychology and how you can parallel that to to legalism and why there are so many people who are attracted to it? Well, yeah, that's, that's quite a question. So, I mean, the first thing I want to say before I answer that more directly is that there isn't one size fits all. So there's going to be just some generalities here that it's not like a blanket accusation or, you know, if I speak negatively here, it's not to say that everybody fits into, uh, you know, this this trap or this reason. I mean, because people are multifaceted, and so they're going to have a, a variety of reasons as to why they adopt a certain belief system. I think for a lot of us, it was this is what we knew, and this is what our parents passed on to us. You know, at that point, the question is, why did you maintain that for so long? What was it about that that kept you holding on for so long? one of the things that keeps us hanging on for so long is insulation. As long as we're not around people from other groups, we can continue to caricature them and demonize them. But once we get to meet them and know them and see the fruit of the spirit being produced in their lives, it's really hard to deny that that fruit is, is real. When you read authors from other fellowships and you see the kind of scholarship they have, you see the kind of love for the Lord that they have and the kind of fruit they're producing. As long as we can insulate people from those things, then, you know, we kind of keep people under our wing and, and don't have to worry about quote, you know losing them. But I think some of it comes down to like dominance hierarchies and our 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 desire to be on top. We really desire to to be the dominant uh, force and 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 factors. So you know, a lot of a lot of churches of Christ, in my opinion, kind of solidified when we were kind of in our heyday, our glory days. We're like we were the fastest growing group in America, North America, and you know, at that period of time, that it's kind of like things got set in stone in the period of our greatest success, the period of our greatest like dominance, we're like dominating the denominations. We're studying with them, converting them, proving our superiority to them. It's, it's like we're in this, this, well, it, 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 it's the way that, that human beings operate is where am I in the pecking order? Well, do you want to be on the bottom or on the top? And we create whole systems to ensure that we're on, on the top. We create argumentation to ensure that we're on the top and it doesn't make it all untrue. It's not like everything we're saying have ever said has been untrue. But I think some of those things are appealing, but the promises are very hollow. Because when I know when I was a legalist, and I'll say for many of the people who I know who've been trapped in legalism, that legalism promised a certainty that it really couldn't deliver on. And I think the reason for that, it's kind of counterintuitive, was because all of a sudden I had all these constructed lists of what it took to be in good with God, to be the right kind of Christian, to be the only kind of Christian. And if the, the longer that list becomes, the more neurotic you become. Yes. Because yep. you begin to say, well, what if I miss something? Because there is no grace in this system. 
So what if I miss something? Or there's even this conception of you can only be forgiven of sins that you've asked forgiveness for. Well, golly, we're all going to hell. Right? Right? Aren't yeah, we all yeah. going to hell? You know, well, well, I, I, <laughs> so this, there's, there's, there's a high neuroticism with this that is extremely unhealthy. Well, this is this something, is something I, wanted I wanted to bring up to you because, because talking about certainty and and having it all figured out, because it was when I realized certainty was nothing more than a feeling <laughs> that I'm mm. like, oh, OK, because there's a lot of times I was certain I was right. And then I saw I was wrong. So so much for certainty. But uh, when I was talking to a guy one time, he had come to my office when I was preaching. And and uh, I think I've shared this story in this podcast and before on one episode, but uh, you, you'll probably appreciate it. He was he and I were talking because I had written an article called "Does God's Grace Cover Doctrinal Error?" And the point is, of course it does, because we're we're all wrong. Doctrine just means teaching, and so there's 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 obviously going to be something that we're missing or something we're wrong on. And even if we do get everything right emotionally and intellectually, we're not going to always be executing it perfectly. And so he he just told me he said, "So you think God's grace can actually cover doctrinal error?" And I said, well, of course. I said, otherwise, I wouldn't be a Christian because if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be wasting my time because if it didn't, we're all going to be damned anyway. And so I said, do you, do you believe that he's not going to cover? God's grace will not cover any doctrinal. He goes, well, of course not. So I asked him this question. I said, do you believe right now that there is something you could ignorantly be doing that you're not sure about, that you could be wrong on? <laughs> And of course he had to say yes, because, you know, it would be ignorance. You wouldn't know. I said, do you think there's anything you could be ignorantly wrong about right now? And he said, no, nothing that pertains to my salvation. And I said, well, you're saying then that you are at the point of being infallibly correct, correct on everything pertaining to salvation, what constitutes salvation issues, and that you're believing everything correctly, you're executing everything correctly. He said, absolutely, 100%. And he, his, his follow-up was interesting because it revealed a lot. He said, otherwise, I couldn't know I'm saved. And so that just shows you the attachment that legalism really has to, 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 to people's psyche, that they believe they have to say, I have everything figured out, because that's required of them in order for them to say, that's why I know I'm going to heaven. Right. Not because yeah. of Jesus, yeah. not because of these other things, but because I have everything figured out, even to the point when someone says, well, could you possibly be wrong? I mean, could you be ignorant on something right now? Obviously, you wouldn't know if you were. So is that not a possibility? And his response is no, that's not a possibility. In his mind, if that's a possibility, he couldn't say he's saved because in order right. to be saved, you have to have everything. So, yeah, I just I find all of that so interesting and just I mean, just how damaging it is mentally. And how exhausting it is. I remember just how exhausting it was when I was trying to be consistent. And it's the ones who who tend to be really involved, the ones who are truly trying to figure these things out, the ones who are really trying to to draw a line of consistency that end up either giving up completely and leaving faith altogether because they're like, this is impossible. And I've met several people like that. Or it's those who say, well, maybe I just need to read the Bible differently. Maybe maybe mm -hmm. I'm missing something here. Maybe this isn't the right filter. That's so good. You know, I, I want to take us back to to 1 Corinthians 1, 1, 1, 2 Corinthians 1, 1, Galatians 1, 1, etc. to the church of God in. Now let me address your doctrinal problems. 
Okay, Corinth, you have doctrinal problems. You're doing the Lord's Supper so badly that you're not even doing the Lord's Supper, <laughs> etc. You you have problems with using your gifts in manipulative and domineering ways, so much so that I got to write First Corinthians 13 to remind you that despite what kind of gifts or comp- comp- comparisons you're making, that if you don't have love, you're nothing. They are so royally messed up, you know. I mean, it for him for him to call them the Church of God is just, it's unbelievable to people who grew up in legalism that he could even say that and then go on to say all the things that are so wrong about them and yet still have called them that. And yet there, there are, so I, I've met a lot, of, a lot of Christians, a lot of Church of Christ people who are on the opposite side of that, who say, I'll say, okay, can you be sure of your salvation? And they're like, no. No, I can't be. I mean, I I probably messed something up. I mean, how do I really? How would I really know I'm saved? And I'm like, that is one of the saddest things that I could possibly hear a Christian say. And it's like, well, what about First John five thirteen, where he says that he writes these things so that we would know that we have eternal life? Like, is that impossible to know? Shouldn't it? It seems to me like the New Testament writers expect us to be sure. So why would they expect us to be sure? And the disconnect is the reason that we that some of us think we can't be sure is because we have no conception of grace. And so we think the burden of salvation rests on our own work, and we probably don't think we've done quite enough. So what if I didn't do enough? But obviously the biblical picture is the only reason you can know for sure, as you should as a Christian, is because of what Jesus has done and because he has conquered death, he's resurrected from the dead, and he's he said, come along, follow me, and I'll, I'll take you through it too. I mean, so... I th- yeah, that's, I think- a, that's a great point. It kind of creates that dichotomy that either you're honest enough to say, no, I can't, no, I'm saved because I could be doing something wrong and I'm always struggling because we all know our faults, right? We can be, we can yes. put on for other people, but we all know deep down if we're honest. And so, yeah, it kind of creates this, this dichotomy that either you have to, if you're honest and you're willing to admit your own failures and, and you're saying, Hey, I, I think I'm saved. I hope I'm saved, but man, I, I just don't know. Um, because, uh, there may be something I'm doing that's, that's off that I'm going to go to hell for. And then the other side is, no, I know I'm safe because I know I've got everything <laughs> figured right. out. And yeah, so exactly. it's, it's almost legalism. And, and that's, that's one of the ways I always identify. I said, if you either think you have it all figured out or you're scared to death because you don't, you're probably a victim of legalism. Yeah, and, you know, it's it, it appears typically in either extreme arrogance or, um, or, or humble insecurity, because those yeah. are the only only two really directions that you can take uh, within legalism, unfortunately. That's really good. So, I mean, if someone's listening to this and they find themselves in either camp, then that, that's going to require some some introspection and some going back to the scriptures on, and do a, a nice long study on grace and the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I want to just say one other thing about something I started to say earlier that I didn't quite finish, and that was I was starting to talk about how we need to go back through the scriptures and look for verses in particular that talk about where the lines are. So I started talking about how we would go back and say, well, the verses that say you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you behave like this, they're not, they're not doctrinal lists in the New Testament that say, okay, if you don't believe this and this and this and this, there, there are some things like that, not directly laid out, like specifically as the behavioral lists. They do exist and they should be found 
And we should go spend some time looking at, just like in the Old Testament, circumcision, kosher, holy days, and Sabbath, we need to go back and look through. Here's the thing. Not, not every single verse in the New Testament is an identifying marker of being a Christian. And I think that's the, one of the big mistakes that our, our movement has made, our Churches of Christ have made, is to, um, is, is to create everything to be an identifying marker. It's all identifying markers of, and if it's an identifying marker, it's a fellowship issue. It's a salvation issue. But here's the thing. Again, that's a liberal move because you're going beyond what the scriptures make out of those particular items. So here's what I've concluded. I've concluded that it would be a liberal move for me to assign salvation to things which the Bible does not. That someone could do something wrong and be in sin, but it not be a salvation issue. And so we, we got to go back and look at it. Like, I don't see any way around baptism. I mean, baptism is being clothed with Christ. Baptism is being united in its death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism is receiving the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins. And you go down the whole list and go, how could you be a Christian without receiving all the things said about baptism? And now baptism kind of gets a little misconstrued because we look at it sometimes as our work. But baptism in Greek is almost always in the passive voice, which means it's something that is done to you. It's something that you submit to and receive. It's the work of God. So baptism is not a meritorious work. Baptism is God's work on our behalf. And I, so I, I think we have to go back and look at that and say, if I'm to be biblical, what does the Bible actually say about the lines? Not how do I construct the lines or what does my philosophical approach to Christianity with restorationism or patternism, etc. Like, not what lines does my philosophy create, but where does the Bible itself actually draw the line? Like, you know, you you need to have received the Holy Spirit. Well, I associate that with baptism. I need to be baptized. I need forgiveness of my sins. I mean, so there are there are lines, but not everything's in, in that line. And it all comes back to you know, First John one, this is five through seven. If we walk in the light as he is in the light. The blood of his son cleanses us of all unrighteousness. That, that verse blew my mind because I'm thinking, how can I be in the light and be participating in unrighteousness? What's the blood of Jesus that cleanses me of those things and keeps me in there, right? So there's just those kind of verses that we really need to wrestle with, like 1 John 1, 5 through 7. We need to wrestle with Romans 14. We need to wrestle with 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 and really wrap our minds around, if I'm truly going to be biblical, I need to agree with what I find in these verses and allow my belief system to rearrange itself back around the scriptures. And, and when, I, when I make salvation issues out of peripheral things, if I make salvation issues, I mean, literally out of silence, literally out of inferring loose connections between disconnected, out-of-context verses and, and create salvation issues, that's like the most liberal thing I could imagine somebody could do. Absolutely. Well, and I agree 100% with, with what you're saying about allowing the scriptures to define and redefine and structure and shape our faith. The thing is, is there's quite a few people who, there's quite a few people who believe that those salvation issues that they have heard are salvation issues forever within the one cup branch the cup is a salvation issue instrumental music and worship is a salvation issue 
If a sister cuts her hair in the eyes of some, that is potentially a salvation issue. And everyone who holds to those perspectives has said that they have gone to the scriptures to make that determination. And they say, I just do what the Bible says. I'm following what the Bible teaches. I am just, you know, I'm, I'm respecting the word for what it is. And if you love truth as much as I do, then you would agree with me. And the problem isn't necessarily that the Bible doesn't say those things. The issue is how meaning is extrapolated from those things. One of the things that I'm fond of saying is, is that the Bible says what it says, but the Bible also means what it means. The Bible doesn't always mean exactly what you can draw out of it at first blush. If, if that is how the Bible was to be approached through the lens of strict literalism, then anytime I mess up and sin with my hands, I need to cut one of them off. I need to pluck out an eye, et cetera, on and on and on it goes. If someone asked me, if you were to ask me right now for $1,000, I'd need to give it to you. I'd be, well, what's your Venmo? I need to do that. Jesus said, give to anyone who asks of you. So one of the things Kevin and I have discussed quite a bit on this podcast is the importance of context. And how context and the embedded cultural context from which scripture emanates, that, that human side of the divine discourse is something that needs to be taken into account to gain a good understanding of the meaning behind the text and what it is that the Holy Spirit intended to reveal and to convey. And what ultimately led me out of legalism, what ultimately led Kevin out of legalism was some sort of cognitive dissonance that became too great to continue to deal with and to put up with. And we had to restudy the scriptures and we had to look at the scriptures through a different lens to see how wrong our approach had been before. And that is a really hard process to navigate through. That's a really hard thing to do whenever you've been entrenched in it for so long, because the people that say the cup is a salvation issue or the hair or whatever else, most of those people are behaving and coming to those conclusions in an honest way as far as their own study is concerned. Those people hold to those convictions because they genuinely believe that if they do X, Y, or Z, or if they fail to do X, Y, or Z, that they will and can lose their soul over it. They are sincere in their convictions. So you have that level of sincerity that you have to work with whenever you're, you're speaking with someone who's, who's you know, entrenched within that legalistic mindset. And it, it can be really yeah. hard to get through to somebody because they are so sincere in what they believe and what they hold to. Absolutely. One of the questions that I think is important for us to consider for, for people to consider as they are examining their belief system, if they're considering like, maybe maybe I'm, I'm not looking at this correctly and I'm entrenched in legalism and I'm looking for a way out. Well, I will say, if you try to find your way out of legalism, expect to go through all five stages of grief. Yes, um, but, you know, you, you need to ask yourself this question. Is the New Testament more legalistic than the Old Testament? Because in the Old Testament, again, if I have 636 commandments and only four of them actually say, if you don't abide by this, you're out. Are 100% of the New Testament commandments, which we already noted we're picking and choosing because there are imperatives we just do not obey. Because you can be a non-disciple making church, which is Jesus' final commandment, and be a sound congregation. 
But if you don't make a disciple, who cares as long as you got the governance right and the five acts of worship going on, right? So I think we need to ask ourselves this question is, is the New Testament more, more legalistic than the Old Testament? Because if you, if you fail to purify a, a woman, a woman fails to purify herself correctly after her cycle, she's not out. Is it a law? Yeah, but she's not out. And if you forget to offer your two turtle doves or just didn't find any turtle doves that morning, are you out? No. Should you have obeyed that? Yes, but you're not out. And so, you know, we could go through all these hundreds of rules in the Old Testament, and almost none of them have to do with being in or out. Now, they have to do with, with maintaining a distinct identity amongst the world as the people of God, looking different, acting different, being different. But as far as in and out, I mean, circumcision's done to you before you even know it. And so, you know, is the Old Testament more graceful than the New Testament? Because the way that some people interact with what they find in Scripture, even making commands out of examples, and then binding salvation to all as many of those things as they can find, and yet still excluding things that they're just not familiar with, like fasting, like foot washing, like holy kisses, like wearing jewelry, jewelry braided hair. We go down the list, there's dozens of these things that we flat ignore and say, well, you're still faithful without. And so, you know, I just, I'm going to go back and say, I think the New Testament is actually very similar to the Old Testament in that, yes, God expects certain things, but if you want to be biblical, you have to wrestle with the fact that not every commandment is an in or out. God does not see it that way. If he wanted to see it that way, he would have told us. And, you know, if, if God, if an instrument will send you to hell, God is the most terrible communicator who has ever existed and the most <laughs> dangerous. He's the most dangerous communicator who ever existed. I'm going to throw instruments at you in the Old Testament. I'm going to throw instruments at you in Revelation. Expect you to figure out that that's symbolic. I'm going to send Paul to the temple to worship in Acts. And I'm going to expect you to get seeing out of a, a, a chapter in the Bible you may have never gotten or even been literate to read, and which is most of the world at that time. <laughs> expect you to access the scriptures, which you didn't have access to, and read which you couldn't, and then have an 18th century uh, Lockean paradigm to unlock these pattern mysteries and then hinge your salvation on it. That's one of the most dangerous beings in the universe. <laughs> yeah, I, I I love the way you put that because that can be said on so many different points and yeah. so so many different teachings that even things that could possibly be true in the sense of whether a conclusion is right or wrong is someone going to be lost over that or if so is someone yes. literally not going to go to heaven because they misunderstood something or when the yes. date of revelation uh, or when revelation was actually written or whatever it might be because those are the types of questions that I had to struggle and wrestle with and say and, and ask myself, who is God? Because mm -hmm. at, if, if you know Jesus, if you study the life of, of Christ and you look at everything that he did, how he did it, who he did it to and with and his points of emphasis and all these different things. And then you say, OK, that's who Jesus is. But <laughs> if, if you get this one little thing wrong, or if you misunderstand this, or if you come to a wrong conclusion on this belief, 
then sorry, you're not going to go to heaven. And that really starts making me wonder who is God then? Because yes. if, if the true representation of God is, is Jesus in the flesh, if that is who God revealed himself to be, then now I'm, I'm a very Christocentric individual, meaning that I have to, I filter everything through Jesus. So if my conclusion is something that doesn't match up to everything I know about who Jesus is, I reject it. I reject it. It, I must, I need to look at it in a different light because if, if Jesus is who I'm supposed to be following, after all, we're Christians, we're not Bibleans, right? We're Christians. And so I'm to follow Jesus Christ. And that's why looking at the narrative arc, looking at the character of the Bible, those types of things I think can kind of put checks and balances on our conclusions that help us not to be so radical and say, wait a minute, so you're saying this, you know, you're saying this. I mean, Lee, you know this better than any of us. I mean, you come from a one cup Church of Christ background. It's hard enough to go to heaven being a member of the mainstream churches of Christ mm-hmm. like like Matt and I were, but when when you're part of the the one cuppers, I mean, how many how many members right now are there in the one cup Church of Christ in America? And you may not know, but do you, do you have any idea? The last time I looked at that particular statistic, we put out a publication every year, or the One Cup Churches put out a, a publication every year of quote faithful congregations that adhere to the One Cup No Sunday School position. And in that, there are some no exception churches that hold the no exception view of marriage, divorce, and remarriage that use One Cup and don't have Sunday school. So there's a, a wide smattering. If those folks are included. There is a rough count that is asked of each congregation as to how many are in that congregation. Last number was somewhere between 21 and 23,000 in the United States. Yeah, so so out of all the people claiming to be Christians in America, and, and not just in America, even within the Churches of Christ, I, I don't know how what that number is, but there's 23,000 safe people walking around right now in America. <laughs> right? <laughs> Welcome to the question, and Matt, you at Wineskins, you did a series of, uh, of videos and podcasts on this about the that idea of the only ones going to heaven. And one of the answers that I remember one of our preachers giving to that question was, you know, oh, so you think you're the only ones going to heaven? Well, it's even worse than that. There's some of us that aren't even going. So take that 21,000 people and, you know, cut mm-hmm. some of them faithful people out of there. And man, that number is really, really low. If I can get you guys to just throw out the cups though and just put that one cup on the table, we'll, we'll increase it by a few. So you, you need to get on that. Yeah, that's that's really a great point that you're making. And to, to Kevin's point, when we have a belief system from scripture about God, we really need to consider the kind of God that our belief system requires to exist. Mm-hmm. So if, if my belief system requires a God who is just out to get everybody, then why was that not embodied in Jesus? And, you know, if the Holy Spirit, there, there's a quote that I really love. And it was said by a friend of mine who was a preacher in Florida, and he's out of ministry now, I believe, but his name's Eric Brown. And he was the preaching minister at Campus Church of Christ in Gainesville, which years before him was where Crossroads started. And he was not part of Crossroads but uh, or Boston Movement. Um, they had kind of gotten through all that. But anyway, he said this at Spiritual Growth Workshop in Orlando in like 2012, probably 2010. He said that the early church 
was not trying to be the early church, that the early church was trying to be Jesus. Mm. And I think that's pretty profound because if, if, if my goal is to be like the early church, then actually my goal is to be like Jesus. And that, you know, so I, I think that's really important. And if I, this brings us, and this is a whole nother podcast, right? But the idea of spiritual formation, pneumaticos in Greek is Holy Spirit stuff. Spiritual stuff is Holy Spirit stuff. We think in Greek terms, the spiritual stuff is non-material stuff. In Paul's language, pneumatico, spiritual, is Holy Spirit stuff. And so spiritual formation or spiritual transformation, the work of the Holy Spirit consistently through the letters of Paul is to make us more and more like Jesus. So he would say in Philippians 2, you're to have the same attitude as Christ. You're to have the same mind as Christ. He says in Corinthians, you're to be of the same image of Christ or the likeness of Christ. You're to have, the, again, the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ. On and on and on it goes. And just like he says in Galatians, he says that I groan as if in the pains of childbirth as Christ is being formed in you. Not as church is being formed in you, as Christ is being formed in you. So the goal of our lives is to become more and more like Jesus. And if we embrace a theology or a pattern or a system that is at odds with the man, then we're, on, we're, we're mistaken. You know, there's some adjustments that we need to make. And this is one of the things that convinced me out of my legalism because I had been largely sheltered from people of other denominations, fellowships, of having much conversation with them. So I had a caricature of them in my mind. And then kind of in those spiritually formative years of the early 20s, I went off to grad school at University of Florida. And I went to FCA. It was instrumental. I was very uncomfortable with that. Um, and But I got to know several people who were in that band. And although I still didn't agree with the instruments exactly there for a little while, uh, and still questioned it for some years after that, I knew that those people had been with Jesus. I, I, I saw the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And you either had to say, well, it's completely a show and a fake, and, and Satan is, is really pulling the wool over these guys' eyes. But like Jesus said, when he gets into blasphemy, the Holy Spirit and all that, it's like, why would Satan work against himself? These people are doing amazing things in the name of Jesus. These people are producing more fruit, fruit of the Holy Spirit than I am. These people's love of the Lord is deeper than mine. So how does this happen? Where does this come from? I either have to say they're Jesus people too, or I have to say Satan is somehow doing all this good stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that and that's and that's difficult. That's that's a difficult place to be because. As I mentioned previously, I mean, I've had friends who become atheists because the God that their system created is the God that they believed was the God of the Bible. And of course, mm -hmm. I've tried to explain to them, no, that's that's not the true God. But to them, you can't convince them otherwise because that's what they were taught for so many years. And their their belief system, as you as you put it so so eloquently, if if you're you know, you have to look at what kind of God you believe in based upon the beliefs that you hold. <laughs> and if, if you really think that there's only literally just a, a handful of people going to heaven, and yet this is a God who loves everyone and wants everyone to be saved, and uh, yet he's he's made it so difficult that only just a few folks are going to figure it out, and even half of them aren't even going to figure it out, then what kind of what kind of God do you really serve to begin with? And right. it's, it's more yeah. of a monster than a God. Well, and there is great pride in feeling like you're one of those 20,000. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, uh, which is flesh. That's flesh. Right. And I mean, Romans eight, flesh and spirit just don't work out well together. 
No. Galatians <laughs> 5, flesh and spirit don't work out well together. Yeah, it's yeah. not a it's like putting garlic on your ice cream. It just doesn't, oh. it just doesn't really go together all that well. <laughs> That's good. Well, we'll kind of we'll try to wrap up here because we try to keep it um, hour, hour and fifteen. And so we we want to just ask you a couple of questions here. Tell us about the projects you're you're involved with now. I know with with wineskins, of course. Want to talk a little bit about that? So just you can advertise that a little bit. Tell folks about it because there's so much we so much more we could discuss, right? I mean, this is we're not even really beginning to to touch the hem of the garment here. And so there's just so so much depth to this subject and and I know that you have written a lot about it there's a lot of people who you get to write a lot about these types of topics but of course just a host of topics on wineskins and so if you don't mind just tell us a little bit about that yeah well first thank you for allowing me to have the conversation and for inviting me to be a part of it I'm honored to be able to uh, to have this conversation and to talk through this with some like-minded people and my prayer is that much good comes from this conversation and that there are people who hear this and and maybe are, are challenged or encouraged that they're not crazy, they're, they're not taking a wrong step by questioning things. So I, I just really pray that there's a lot, of, a lot of fruit, a lot of good that comes from this being um, put out there. So thank you for that and uh, and all that the work that's gone into to making this podcast happen. So um, Wineskins is uh, just an online Websites actually kind of like a family of websites. John Mark Hicks's blog, Les Ferguson, MattDebs.com, Wineskins, the Wineskins Archive, Bobby Valentine. Uh, we host all those um, websites through Wineskins. And uh, then we have about 150 people who write periodically for Wineskins, mostly Church of Christ, a few Christian church people. Uh, I'm looking to expand that just a bit um, beyond just restoration movement. But it'll it'll continue to have a restoration movement uh, DNA and, and foundation, and so you know it's been around since what ninety two as a print publication moved online maybe what 15, 16 years ago, and uh, it's just maintained online. Uh, we have a monthly theme that uh, that a lot of the writers write toward. Not everybody does, but it kind of keeps us focused on important issues. And um, yeah, that's been going well. We added the YouTube channel about two years ago. That's that uh, really has grown. I think we're at 2,200 something subscribers in uh, about two years. So I think that's oh, awesome. decent, decent growth. And um, it uh, helps me cover the bills. We have a fair amount of bills just to run that many websites with you know servers and hosting and that sort of thing. So we do run advertisements. If anybody here knows people who might want to advertise on Wineskins, I'd love to connect with that. And um, you know, ACU's done a lot of advertising, Mission Alive, Leafwood, um, you know, HST, just there's been a lot of Church of Christ, Pepperdine, um, just a lot of groups that have, you know, we, we, we look for, for kingdom win-wins where we can benefit from each other um, in those interactions. So Wineskins is wineskins.org. Uh, my website's mattdabs.com. I've written several thousand articles on my website over the last, I don't know, 15 years. Could that even be true? I guess that's true. Wow, that's a lot of articles. And, uh, we've had wow. probably 2 million views on my website and we've had about 180,000 small group downloads from that, which is pretty cool. I get emails periodically just saying, thanks for the free stuff. Cause we like to be open-handed. We don't like to, um, you know, make walls and, and, uh, keep people from what they need. So in addition to that, uh, I'm, I'm teaching adjunct at Maritime Christian college in, um, Prince Edward Island in Canada. 
and doing some discipling uh, curriculum there. They have a new certification in disciple making at Maritime. And if anybody's interested in looking at disciple making, it's an online course. It's asynchronous. It's very, very well done. And uh, so that's going really well. And then, of course, Backyard Church, we started officially in October. And uh, we have a few dozen people attending, uh, 30, 40 people who attend Backyard Church on a given week. And uh, we're very much about participation. We feel like big church model, there's nothing wrong with big church model, but it's really hard to participate when there's three or 400 people in the room. So mm-hmm. if you're at Backyard Church, you're going to participate in worship every couple of weeks. We're going to find things for people to do. Uh, we are instrumental. Uh, we have a couple who leads our worship and uh, their daughter, who's nine, occasionally will lead a song or two. And that's really, really sweet. We want the kids to know. See, I, I really, I love Acts 2.38, but I'm, I'm beginning to love Acts 2.39 as well. When Peter says that these promises are for you and for your children and for all who are far off. That's really a big verse for Backyard Church because it's about generations and it's about the nations. So like we want our kids to know that you're not just here to watch, you're not just here to play, you're here to, to participate. Both of our boys have led prayers, closing prayer at Backyard Church at um, 10 and 12. That probably would have never happened on big church, not for some time. And uh, so we value participation. We have participation of women uh, praying and sharing a thought. And uh, my wife and I will do some teaching and it's, it's been really a blessing. And you all may not agree with all of that, but this is kind of where we've landed. And it's really been a tremendous blessing to watch people use their gifts and to have the freedom to participate in the kingdom effort. Now, you know, our core DNA is disciple making, simple reproducible discipleship, getting people into groups and multiplying groups, reaching the lost, reaching the unchurched. Uh, and so our goal is to multiply out into more neighborhoods. Our goal is to um, get more regional eventually and get into some other places. I have some inroads in South Alabama and in uh, in Florida, and I'm uh, just trying to get people equipped and trained to take this on because, you know, COVID is a game changer. Yeah. And there's going to be a lot of people who are not comfortable with the way that things went. And, 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 and you know, as a preacher, when COVID started in March, my very first assignment in my own mind was, how do I convince people who've gone to church their whole life and are convinced by Hebrews 10 that if they miss, they're going to go to hell. How, how do I convince them that staying home is actually okay? <laughs> That's a tall order, brother. Well, guess what? After you, after you have to convey that message for nine months, people might actually get the memo and not want to come back. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a conversation I had with a buddy of mine. He's an employed minister at a, at a pretty good size institutional church. And, uh, when I say institutional, I mean just typical institutional model where, you know, employed staff and buildings and those types of things and uh, a lot lot of overhead and uh, good guy, fantastic guy. You know, he and I always have good, interesting conversations about things. I usually pick at him a little bit on it. But, um, you know, he was telling me that they're, they're only having about 40 to 50 percent of their members come back. And I said, well, I said, you know, you spent a year telling them they don't have to come and now you're trying to uh, get them. You're basically saying, forget everything we just said for the past year. And I, and that's something that Lee and I both have discussed. And I think we're probably 
you know, probably a little more in sync on some of those things than maybe others. <laughs> but uh, as far as the way we view things, you know, I, I have as far as someone's salvation or, or as far as someone, you know, whether or not they, they need to or, or should and all those things. I think that the institutional church has served a lot of good, 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 great things, wonderful mm-hmm. things. Yes. I think it still does um, for a lot of people. But as things change, I think that we're starting to see more of a trajectory toward uh, church, uh, churches meeting in homes, churches being more communal where there's not as much paid staff, um, or it may just be more about expenses than it is actually occupational, um, those types of things. And, uh, you know, whether it's a communal church or home churches or, or whatever, I think those are are, are needed right now in, in addition to the institutional church. And I tell yeah. folks all the time, cause I'm accused of, of hating institutional churches. <laughs> and, and I tell people, most of my friends are ministers of institutional churches, but um, you know, I just am starting to see the more, especially as you pointed out, COVID is really making a big impact and has made it a big impact. I think we'll continue to make it a big impact on how people see church as being an institution versus being a family. Um, you know, being a place you go to versus being a community that you're constantly part of. Because if, you know, I've, I've had people upon people say, look, we don't even have a community. We've been part of institutional church for 40 years and they don't even actually have a true church community. And they've just been going and sitting in a pew and singing a few songs, putting some money in the plate, taking Lord's supper and hearing a message and leaving each week and saying hi to people, but they don't actually have that community. And so I really appreciate what you're doing on that. I, I hope, I hope that opens the doors um, to just more opportunities as as you make that more known and, uh, you know, people are starting to test the waters on some different ways to to make, for lack of better words, church work in our society and in our culture. And so I really appreciate what you're doing there. I think that's fantastic to give uh, at best an alternative for folks. Yeah, it's been a tremendous blessing. It's been a tremendous faith builder. As anybody who plants a church would tell you, it's a tremendous uh, faith builder and quite a wild ride, um, you know, because you're kind of stepping out of the security of the known and of the predictable and of the, you know, like good salary and all these nice benefits to like, oh, where's the money going to come from? (laughs) And, you know, God has just been so faithful to us. I mean, people... It's funny. People will say to us, you're, you're backyard church. So like you're outside. So what do you do when it rains? And we're like, when it, when it's going to rain, we pray. And uh, we have a, a prayer team. So like most weeks, probably in the last eight weeks, we've had to say chance of rain in the forecast. Please pray. It will not rain like 60, 70 to 90% chance of rain. So guess how many times it's rained since we actually started in March. Cause that's when church shut down and we just started worshiping with neighbors. We have had one Sunday since March, that we had to go to a pavilion. Really? Yes. It's the craziest thing. So we've had people who've come up to us to say, pray? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) We pray for no rain, and the the 100% chance goes away. (laughs) Two two weeks ago, we were ending on a a song that was about the billows rolling and all this, and the dark clouds rolling over Backyard Church. And on the last verse of that song, the, I kid you not, the black clouds parted and the sun beamed down on us. And we had just enough time to get our AV equipment in before a couple sprinkles hit and then it, it all blew off. <laughs> and we just laugh. We just laugh. And we say, well, we know at some point we're going to pray and it actually does rain. So we need to have our faith prepared for, for that. But it's probably been 20 or 25 times that it was supposed to rain that we prayed and uh, it, it didn't. And, you know, God is, is so faithful. Um and I don't want to get too much into too many personal matters, but um, like 
we weren't sure just financially quite how it would work. So like we saved um, for transition for some time. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I got off payroll of full-time ministry in October and we have not touched our savings. That is is completely unsolicited um, things that have come our way that have cash flowed us to the middle of February. And that's it's crazy. It's just crazy. Like, I wish I just would give some more details, but I don't feel like I need to do that. I'm just saying that God is so, what what I want to say is God is so incredible. And there's so many people, including me who are knowing what we need to do. And we are so hesitant to do it because we're really not sure how it's going to pan out or if we're going to be okay or how God's going to do it. And we have cash flowed four months without a paycheck. I'm actually supposed to have been paid a couple of weeks ago. We had a payroll issue. I'm now in the middle of February. I stopped working officially on payroll in October and I have not touched my savings and we get checks in the mail. Uh, we, we had our bailout money. I mean, just whatever, all these things have come. The craziest one was if I can just take 30 seconds, this was so amazing. It's so faith building. And I, I, the reason I'm sharing this is not like we're amazing. The reason I'm sharing this is because somebody's listening to this going like, there's something adventurous I know I need to do, but I'm too scared to jump out and try it. If you think God is calling you to do it, God will supply everything you need to get it done. Just Dallas Willard, vision, intention, and means. Where there is vision and intention, God will supply the means. So we end we end Auburn Church October 15th. So I'm going to get paid the last day of October for half of October. I had done an extension on my taxes and I thought I owed 300 bucks back in April. So I sent the IRS 300 bucks. I had 5% of my taxes left. So I knock out the last 5% of my taxes. And I'm going to get back almost $4,000. It hits my bank the day of my last paycheck and makes up all the rest of my pay. Like to within, <laughs> within $100. And my wife and I are just Damn. laughing. We're at the bank and we check our account. We're just laughing. Like, and that we had no idea that was going to happen every month, different things for three more months. Wow. It is so cool. It is so cool, guys. Like there have been dreams that have happened that have come true. There have been just, just, we, we had a, a Sunday where our kids started doing some stuff in the, during the worship and they needed some clipboards. We just didn't foresee it. And we're like, you know what, back at our church, we pray about everything. We don't just jump out there and do it without praying about it. And so one of the moms was like, Hey, I was about to go buy some clipboards. And instead I decided just to ask God for the clipboards, not knowing quite what that would do. So she just prayed for some clipboards, and about a couple hours later, one of the unchurched mothers in backyard church came and, and called her and said, "Hey, I'm about to go to the store. I get our kids some clipboards for backyard church. How many do you need?" That's awesome. <laughs> okay. So the point is, God is with us, and God is powerful. And if I could encourage anybody in this podcast to just really test God out on that, because He is really good at doing what he does. And we underestimate him. And, you know, in our fellowship, we, we don't tend to act like God is doing an awful lot. I I know it's really strong to say, but like, I can't of all the, I mean, I've worked at some really good churches and with some really good elders. And even amongst that, I cannot recall a moment where a group of elders said, you know what, we really don't know what to do. So we're going to stop everything and ask God to tell us what to do. Mm -hmm. I've never seen it happen. Now, I've seen it happen in Backyard Church. We, we practice this regularly because we really believe that God is going to show us the way. And he does over and over again. 
But well, it seems like the focus so often is on what we do for God and not on what God has done yeah. for us and is doing for us. Yeah. So prayer is not an exercise in listening, but it should oh. be. Oh, you know, that's powerful. Are we going to just talk the whole time or should we just be quiet for a while and listen? And that... it's, it's amazing how God will bring the message through various people. It's amazing there have been there were there it's too much to get into we're kind of running over here but I mean there was a prayer I prayed that I prayed for weeks and God just showed me in a dream what was going to happen the next day and gave me the words to say and it all panned out exactly as He showed me to a T and I could get into the details on that it's crazy and I'm just like God you are with me you are with us you are pushing this forward. We, uh, there's so many stories, guys. I mean, there's dozens of stories and we're just at the very tiptoe on our feet in the water. Like I, I'm just very excited about where God is taking all of this. And, uh, and so I just hope it, it's not about that. We're like great people or anything. I mean, God using us, I mean, just us believe that or not. And, uh, so God is just do, he's, he's working overtime. The opportunities are just tremendous, but if we don't think he's going to guide us, we're just going to keep operating our own strength. And then we're not, I'd say, put it this way, like if we deny the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's role is to empower us and inform us, which Jesus said is the case, then we're not going to be empowered or informed and in the path forward as we should. And we're going to be left to our own devices and we're only going to get us size results. And I think that's where a lot of our churches are stuck. Well, I think that's right. And I think that with COVID, really kind of opening a lot of people's eyes to the lack of community that they may have and mm. as they've been a part of as, as Kevin stated and as Kevin alluded to backyard church and that model, um, a home church model, if you will, it seems to be a really powerful and viable option moving forward. And really, in my opinion, whenever you consider what we know about the culture of the first century. We yes. know about how the churches met and how the churches functioned. You didn't have churches that owned real estate. They didn't have a meeting house that they would come into. There's nothing wrong with those things. Yes, correct. Yeah. But you had full participation of a community of believers, a family of believers that people belong to and that people contributed to and their spiritual formation took place within that context. And it almost seems like that the backyard church, the home church concept is more in keeping with scriptural practices, if we want to use that term, than what the large institutional church model is. And I know there's probably going to be a lot of people that have an interest in this. So we have a link to Backyard Church in our show notes. We have links to uh, the works that you're a part of, and I'll make sure that I have those links right after we after we stop recording. But where could people find more information about this? If any of our listeners, if they're listening to this and this is speaking to them and they're thinking, you know, this may be what where God is calling us. This may be what our next step is and what we need to do in our community and in our locality, how can they find more information about how to, how to plant one of these churches to the end of making disciples in their community? Where can they go to find that information? Yeah, that's really good. So um, the starting point is fasting and prayer, not necessarily like a PDF, right? So fasting <laughs> and prayer, like, is God, is God really leading me in that direction? And spend some time in that. We just were finishing up tomorrow 
40 days of prayer on YouTube, our YouTube channel. And I would encourage somebody take 40 days and pray about it. Walk through those videos. We sit down with our kids every night and each video, it's a, it's a single three to five minute thought followed by a prayer prompt and a scripture. And we watch it with our 10 and 12 year old every night, for the last 38 nights. And they still fuss with each other 38 nights in a row while we, <laughs> while we do it. But <laughs> we, you know, it's, it's important with, with, without reliance on God and recognizing the sovereignty of God and the supremacy of God and opening ourselves up to God initiating communication with us and giving us true guidance, we're just not going to get the kind of results that the future is going to require of the kingdom of God. I mean, I, I think that, so that, that's a starting point. I would say start with fasting and prayer. Fasting always starts small. Fasting doesn't start big. So we bite off something, a very small chunk as we begin that. And what I finally learned about fasting was it has to be a rhythm. It can't just be like a once a year kind of thing. If you get into a weekly rhythm, then you're going to you're going to draw close to God in a way that you'll have the most peace you've ever had in your entire life, even though you're going through the toughest stuff you've ever gone through. So that's where I would start. And then we have a prospectus on the backyardchurch.org website that people can download that will give more information kind of about our story and what we're doing. And we're going to continue when the 40 days are up to uh, with our blog. Uh, the blog covers the 40 days of prayer and we're going to start putting information. There is some information there already on the blog on backyardchurch.org that people can glean from. And we have a few other documents we're about to upload that will outline our, uh, our principles, our core values and how we're executing on those. And if anybody wants to call me and just say, Hey, I'm really interested in this. Uh, what do I do? I would love to have those conversations on the phone. And my number is three, three, four, seven, five, zero, nine, nine, one, nine. And anybody who wants to have that conversation is welcome to give me a call and uh, we'll walk through that as we continue to see the, the thing is we don't want to claim like we're experts as we're just getting started. We do have things I think will work, but as these things become clear, as we, be, as we continue to produce the documentation and all that, obviously we're not trying to make a, a cookie cutter and constrain what God's going to do. But I do think there are some priorities and principles that are scriptural and, and fairly universal. That could be some guiding points for, people who want to do things like this. And I would ultimately like to start a couple of, of learning communities or cohorts with people who are interested and do a little bit of leader training with uh, on Zoom from people from all over the country as one of my future steps. So yeah, give me a call. Awesome. Matt, thank you so much once again for, for coming on our little show with us. We really appreciate you. And brother, once again, like I told you before we hit record, I appreciate all the work you've done with wineskins. I appreciate the work that you've done on your website. All the content that you're putting out there has been so helpful to me. It's been such a blessing. And I just want to be one to encourage our listeners to check out the stuff that Matt and the team over at Wineskins has put together. Check out the articles that they have written, watch the videos that they put out, listen to the Wineskins podcast, which is a fantastic podcast. We have all those links in our show notes. So you guys and, be sure and check that out. And I do have a question, Matt, for uh, for wineskins. Do you guys put old articles in your new wineskins? <laughs> <Didn't Okay>. sh- <laughs> <laughs> I have a not often. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I can tell you are really amused by that one. Yeah, that's good. I like that. The <laughs> same. All the way. <laughs> I wouldn't use that word. <laughs> well, man, this has been a 
conversation. We appreciate you so much. And maybe at some time in the future, we can see about having you back on to talk a little bit more about spiritual formation, to talk about backyard church, to just kind of have a discussion about some of those things. And, and man, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for coming on, brother. Absolutely. Can I say a prayer for you guys? Yes, please do. Absolutely. Go ahead. Absolutely. God, we just want to pray and ask for you to bless this effort, for you to bless Kevin and Lee, God, in the work that they are trying to do and be faithful to the calling that you have given to them, that you will connect them with the people who most need to hear these messages, that you will produce fruit from the content that they're creating in the hearts and minds and lives of real people all across the nation, across the world. We pray for the reach of this ministry to expand. We pray for your Holy Spirit to open up hearts to receive the words that are spoken. We ask that people will understand and, and hear these words through a lens of love and, and affection and not through a lens of criticism. God, I just pray that you will continue to equip um, Lee and Kevin in the work that you're putting before them, that they will understand and see what the next steps are as this grows, that they will understand the audience that you've put before them and speak into the, those audiences in, in relevant ways, but ultimately, God, that you would be glorified by what they're doing, and God, that they would be faithful to the calling that they have received from you. So I thank you for them. I'm grateful for them, and lift them up to you, and ask God for your care and for your mercy upon them and their ministry, and for your spirit to empower them, to inform them, and for them, Lord, even to say things they didn't expect to say, but would be exactly what somebody listening needs to hear. And the weeks, days, years to come. Thank you for them. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Brother, thank all you. Right, so thank you all. Again, we appreciate you. We never want to close out without extending our thanks to our listeners. We thank all of you. Thank you all so much. We crossed over the 10,000 download threshold not too long ago, and it looks like we'll be crossing over 11,000 very, very soon. Um, our audience is growing. It's because you guys out there in listener land are constantly sharing this podcast with your friends. So thank you so much for that. Um, like us on Facebook, join our group, follow us, feel free to share our podcast with others. Give us that five-star review on iTunes or Google Podcasts or Spotify or whatever service you use to consume your media. Thank you all so much. We appreciate you all, and we look forward to being with you once again very soon. Good night.